welcome to the Masters in Psychology podcast, where psychology students can learn from psychologists, educators, and practitioners to better understand what they do, how they got there, and hear the advice they have for those interested in getting a graduate degree in psychology. I'm your host, Brad Schumacher, and today we welcome Hope Kelleher to the show. Hope is a licensed clinical social worker with a private practice in Lower Manhattan. She provides individual, couple, and family therapy. She received her bachelor's degree in public health and sociology from the Johns Hopkins University and her master of arts in social work from Columbia University. Hope is an author of a few books, including Here to Make Friends, How to Make Friends as an Adult, which was a gold winner for family and relationships in the 2020 Forward Indies Book Awards. Her most recent book is called The Resilience Workbook for Women, a transformative guide to discover your inner strength, conquer adversity, and achieve your goals. Today, we will learn more about her academic and professional journey, more about Hope Kelleher therapy and her new book, and hear her advice for those interested in the field of social work and psychology. Hope, welcome to our podcast. Hi, Brad. Thank you so much for having me today. I'm very excited to share uh, my journey um, with those who might be interested in pursuing a, a degree in social work or psychology. Well, I appreciate you taking the time out of your schedule to talk with us. Every single guest on our podcast has a different journey to tell. And so I know that when we looked at yours, you received your bachelor's degree in public health and sociology, as I said, at the uh, John Hopkins, Johns Hopkins University. Tell me a little bit more about your undergraduate experiences and what eventually led you to focus on public health and sociology. Yeah, um, that's a really good question. I went to um, Johns Hopkins in, um, I graduated in, from high school in 2001. So it was right after 9-11 uh, or just before 9-11, I was at Hopkins um, during 9-11. Um, I went in to pursue environmental engineering and was just absolutely miserable. Um, and I realized that I, I, I liked working with people. I liked being around people. I liked helping people. I worked at my college's career um, center as like a career coach type of thing. And I just, I really liked volunteering. And then um, my, my university had a program, this is a little sort of tangled web, but um, where we, where we did a little bit of a study in Cuba and Havana. Um, and so I had always wanted to go to Havana. And the only way I could do it was to be a public health major. And I took one look at my organic chem and the intensity of the Johns Hopkins pre-med student body. And I kind of said, screw this. I want to go to Cuba and I want to I want to see what their public health system is like. Right. Um, and so that is sort of like how I stepped foot into public health. Um, and I did a lot of work, um, you know, after um, Hopkins in the public health um, domain. And I, I did some internships at the United Nations, I'm sorry, the WHO, the World Health Organizations in Geneva on postpartum depression. Mm -hmm. um, so that that's sort of like part of the entree into the world of psychology. I did a lot of work in the inner city Baltimore at the Hopkins School of Public Health doing um, like family and child health research. So actually going into some of the homes and doing home-based research in the community. And um, what happened then is I, was graduating and I was like, I'm going to go into the Peace Corps, right? And um, they commissioned me to Uganda doing AIDS hospice work. And at that time I had this boyfriend and he was going to New York 
And my, um, when I was getting my physical, my doctor looked at me and she's like, why are you going to Uganda? She's like, you could do so much good here in Baltimore. Why don't you stick around and see, you know, hospice work is really hard, you know, um, for one psyche. And I've gone through a lot of like loss in my life. And so she's like, you know, I don't really think this is the best thing for you. Right. And so my uncle also said that too. He's like, maybe, maybe think of something different. So I had this boyfriend, he moved to New York. And I'm sitting, um, I stayed back in Baltimore after I graduated for about two years um, and um, was working at the Annie E. Casey Foundation, which was um, started by the owner of UPS. And, um, you know, the goal of that foundation is to really help children um, thrive and survive in underdeveloped and low-income communities. And they do a bunch of like grants stuff. And so I was working there um, in their library, actually, while also doing um, research for Hopkins. And it was domestic violence research that I was doing at the time. So I had two part-time jobs, right? I'm trying to figure my life out. I'm like 21, you know, have this boyfriend in New York. My family's from New York. And I, I'm sitting there trying to like piecemeal, <laughs> you know, my rent together effectively. Um, and I thought I was going to go into um, like a PhD program at one point. And I was like, you know, I really want to go home to New York. So I have this like ba background of public health. And I've been working at the Annie Casey Foundation doing kind of like child welfare work, right, for their library. And I'm working in, you know, doing domestic violence research um, in Baltimore. And I went to a career fair in New York just to test it out. And I ended up finding a job with the Children's Aid Society, right, which is a big nonprofit in New York. Um, and one of their goals is to help families stay together. So that's that alert, Brad. Uh -huh. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, hold on. Okay. Um, and, and so I went to this career fair. I got this job as a case planner, which is like a case aid. And, and the goal was um, for workers to go into homes where families have been touched by the children's service, children's services, where children were, going, children were at risk of being placed in foster care. And the goal was to provide them with um, like, you know, some basic kind of counseling, supportive counseling and service coordination. Okay. So as I was doing that, um, you know, a, a number of my supervisors were also therapists in private practice. So they were mm -hmm. LCSWs, which are licensed clinical social workers. And they had side gigs where they had their private practice. They were doing this really good work. Um, so at that juncture, I decided to go uh, to Columbia um, and I went to school part time because Columbia is very expensive for those out there. You know, um, I'm an upper limit millennial and student debt is a big thing. And so I worked with my agency, Children's Aid Society, where they funded me. They funded half of my tuition. Right. So any recommendation I can give to people going into social work, social work does not pay a lot of money. So wherever you can find a deal, take it, right? So Columbia um, and my agency had this agreement um, where I could, you know, go to school part-time and then work part-time, work full-time. So that's what I did. And then after I graduated in 2011, um, I decided to pursue family therapy and I went to a place called the Ackerman Institute mm -hmm. for the family. Um, so really my journey into private practice and being more of a, a clinical person um, happened um, while I was working in a nonprofit and agency 
uh, you know, government agencies in New York City. So it was sort of a parallel process. Well, you covered a lot of my first questions here. You went through your journey, <laughs> going through your from your undergrad through almost leading up six years later, going and finishing your uh, master's degree in social work. And in between there, you were trying to figure out, well, should I go here? Should I go over to Uganda? The boyfriend was also a factor. And then eventually people kind of convinced you, it sounds like to do some good around here. And that's what led you to find out, hey, somebody with an LCSW or a licensed clinical social worker can actually open up their own private practice. And as you mentioned, your postgraduate study was in marriage and family therapy and counseling at the Ackerman Institute for Family in New York, New York. And so after that, kind of bring us um, to the present of where you are now. So what, you know, you got funded, half of it was funded through that agency. And then after you finished that work in 2017, what did you do after that? So in 2017, um, so it took me a while to kind of, um, you know, graduate from my postgraduate program. Um, and I was still at a crossroads in 2017. I was the assistant director of, a, you know, a nonprofit um, and it was just getting like really hard. Um, you know, I was doing a lot of hard work, working really long hours, not getting compensated fairly, right? And so that's something that people have to really think about when they do this work. My, my sense is that times have changed. And then um, in about 2018, I started my own like very small private practice. So again, I was still working full time, trying to make that um, transition into private practice. Okay. And I should, um, I should remember to ask you, what brought you to Columbia University? There are many other schools in New York that offer graduate degrees in psychology and social work. What drew you to Columbia University? I mean, I'm going to be real. Like they, they had a deal with my company, okay. <laughs> right? So I had 50% tuition off. Okay. Um, you know, I, at that, at that time, I think I was still making like $30,000 or something. I had a mm -hmm. part-time job. Um, and, and so when you're considering social work, right, um, you know, sure, you want to consider the quality of the program, but there wasn't much else for me to choose, right? Like, it just seemed like a really good, great institution. And, um, you know, thinking about the finances around it was really important. But, you know, I do think that um, one of Columbia's emphasis is um, back in the day was on social justice. And that, okay. you know, really speaks to me um, even now as I've transitioned into private practice. And so, um, you know, other uh, MSW programs, they might have a more clinical bend um, where they really do graduate people to go into private practice. But I, I think, you know, when I was a student at Columbia, um, the emphasis was on really cultivating people who have strong clinical skills, strong research skills, and who could, um, you know, maybe run um, like agencies and be thought leaders um, while maybe having a private practice. So a lot of my clinical, um, you know, uh, skill set came after when I went um, and to the Ackerman Institute for the Family and some other postgraduate programs um, that I had to pursue. But that's something to think about. Sure. The other thing to consider too, and I want your thoughts on this, is. Many of our uh, audience listeners, uh, students might reach kind of a fork in the road 
I want to do some work in this area, but I'm not sure if I should go the psychology route or social work route. How did you make that decision? And do you have any advice for those students who are reaching that fork in the road? I think it's about, you know, well, first thinking about what you might want your end goal to be, right? Even if you just have a schematic of what Mm -hmm. that looks like. Um, And also like your time commitment, right? And and for me, you know, finances, you know, are are something to think about when you're investing Mm -hmm. in your education. So for instance, in New York, um, a clinical social worker can do psychotherapy where in some other states you have to be a PsyD or a PhD, Mm -hmm. right? And so it's very different. Um, I also think, you know, if you want to do more administrative leadership, then sometimes a social work degree is a little bit more diverse. Mm-hmm. If you are interested in doing more psychological testing, um, you know, then maybe a, a PhD is more valuable. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, in New York, in New York, um, when you're thinking about developing a, a practice, um, you know, insurance companies are more likely to reimburse or to give uh, give um, social workers get them on their panels because we're cheaper. Right. And so there's like a whole, there's a lot of history and I'm not an expert in the, in the evolution of how psychiatrists went to just be prescribers and psychologists are now doing a lot of the psychological testing. Um, and, and there's, I mean, I can't speak to it, but there's like, a, it's, there, it's, a, it's a heated issue. I'm sure maybe you've heard of this in that, in the field mm-hmm. of the way the healthcare system has evolved. So that's something that um, I didn't really have to think about it that much because I kind of fell into this path. Mm-hmm. But if it, for those who are at that crossroad, I would probably give some consideration of those factors. Well, I'm glad you brought that up because I do have the website here for those of you who are interested in finding out what are some of the license requirements to become a licensed uh, clinical social worker in the state of New York. While I'm kind of going through this, can you kind of recall from your memory, what were some of the requirements that you needed to keep in mind in order to get that licensure? Sure. So I definitely had to have, and it's been a while now, um, I think it was like 3,000, and I might be mistaken, and the hours might be 2,500 or 3,000 um, uh, clinical hours being with providing counseling to um, patients or clients that my mm-hmm. supervisor had to sign off of. Mm-hmm. And so that was for my clinical degree. For mm-hmm. the LMSW, which is the first step, um, so after you go to get your MSW, if you want to practice really anywhere, and even if you're in the um, nonprofit, nonprofit sector or the healthcare sector, um, you know, like a discharged social worker at a hospital, you really have to have your L. And so the requirements for that, if they haven't changed, is you just have to take your licensing test. Mm-hmm. Um, so but the L, you have to take a licensing test for the LCSW. It's an additional licensing test, which is a little bit um, more clinical. And you have to have, you know, those hours that are signed off mm-hmm. by a supervisor. Yep. And so I'm sharing while you're talking some of the uh, requirements. And of course, we'll share this uh, website when we go live with your interview. Um, But it does cover the general requirements, as you can see here, the fees that are associated with it, some refunds if that does come into play, and then some of the education requirements, practicum hours, how many semester hours you have, 
And then experience requirements, this gets into your supervision, your supervised hours as well. Mm -hmm. And then um, it also gets into, if you scroll down, some applicants licensed in other states. So if you're bringing your licensure and you're moving to New York, what are the procedures to follow there? So uh, we'll, of course, share this with everybody. But I wanted to share that with everybody because when you start looking at the requirements, it helps make you, it forces you to think about your plan and what the end goal is, as you mentioned, and how to get there. So it, it helps you with those steps. Since I'm sharing my screen, I'll go to your uh, uh, private practice. Tell us a little bit more about Hope Kelleher Therapy. Sure. Um, so right now, um, I am seeing people in, using a hybrid model. So uh, part um, in my office, I have two offices, one in Lower Manhattan, one in Murray Hill. Um, mm -hmm. And then I'm doing uh, the rest um, using teletherapy from my position where you, where you guys are seeing me. Um, I work with really a variety of um, families and individuals. Um, I am something that I've, I like to refer to myself as a systemic and relational therapist. So I think about the relationship the individual has with themselves and then in the multiple contexts of their lives, so home life, work life, community life. Um, I work with, you know, a fairly, a fairly even, even split of um, individuals, couples, and families. But I always do think of, when I think of my practice and the people that I'm trying to support, I think of them within a larger system, right? Mm -hmm. And I think we can all appreciate that after COVID, nobody wants to not be in a system or in a vacuum anymore. Um, so that's a little bit more about like my approach to treatment. Um, you know, I do think for those who are moving into private practice, having a variety of skills, um, developed over like just before you start your private practice is really important. Um, you know, after I left child welfare in an administrative role, I knew I had to get some more like clinic experience, which was really helpful. So I worked um, with a, um, in a mental health clinic in the Bronx that had a lot of high risk cases, you know, like very, um, very kind of low income area, like high crime area, lots of a lot of things. Um, and that was, I think, the most invaluable experience. And so that's one thing that, um, you know, some of my mentors had, had shared with me, that, you know, make sure you get a lot of experience working with many different people before mm -hmm. you go into private practice, because you really never know who will show up. Mm -hmm. um, and so I'm glad that I heeded that advice. And I've seen some of my colleagues struggle if they haven't had that type of um exposure mm -hmm. right um so that's also something just for for those who are considering an msw or private practice to think about as well and you've had this private practice i believe since 2018 so a little over five years can you think back what were some of the top challenges or biggest challenges that you had when you started going through that procedure of opening up your private practice. So this would be applicable to anybody who's going into private practice, whether they have a social work degree or a psychology degree. Uh, what were some of the biggest challenges you had to face when you were opening up your private practice? Yeah. Um, so I definitely think, you know, I was lucky because I, you know, that boyfriend became my husband. So he was a support, like a financial support to me. Um, but I was still working part-time um, and, you know, it does take financial resources to get a 
practice up and running. And so, you know, compared to other fields, our field is, or my field, there's less overhead, but thinking about um, where you want to work. Um, so I initially rented an office in the same neighborhood that I worked, and that can be interesting, right? When you're seeing clients and, you know, you're having a mimosa at brunch and you're like, oh, I know that person or somebody is, knows your dog. So that's something to think about, right? Um, and how you handle that with your clients. So renting a place, thinking about what your hours are um, sometimes, and I definitely was one of these people, um, people starting a private practice, they're just so eager to kind of build their clientele that they are too accommodating. Um, you know, so I would have clients at like 9 p.m. on a Friday and that's not really great, right? So knowing what your own boundaries are um, and knowing that you can't help everybody, right? Mm -hmm. So thinking about, screening clients before. Some people are not going to be um, the right fit for you and that is okay. And also having like other other people in the field that you can refer them to, I felt was like really helpful. Um, getting a supervisor, right? And so that's something I'm not sure if those who are listening are aware of this, but in psychology, you always want to have a supervisor, sort of just somebody that you can, and it could be a peer supervisor or somebody you pay, just to help you um, brainstorm clinical issues. Um, and it's confidential and there's no disclosure of like the client's you know, names or identifying information, but to have that support. So those are some of the things that I think are important to think about. Um, so I started my practice in 2018 um, and it, it was sort of in the spring of 2018. And then um, like, you know, I really, I felt like I just start, I just gotten it going I had my own office that I was paying for on a monthly basis, which is huge. And then COVID happened. Mm -hmm. um, and I think that was actually one of the more challenging experiences for me, um, migrating from, you know, an in-person model to a telehealth model, which mm -hmm. presents its own limitations. Um, and also just keeping up with the demand because everybody wanted therapy. So those are, those are a couple of things to think about. And I should mention then the bright, you know, uh, the silver lining or the bright side of what happened after COVID through and at the end of COVID, uh, if we can say that now, is um, now agencies are allowing for people who practice in one state to actually do telehealth in other states. And so there's reciprocity that is happening. And there is a website out there that actually shows different uh, states that do allow reciprocity. If you're licensed in one state, you can do telehealth in other states. So I guess that's the nice thing that has happened as a result of, you know, going through that. We realized, hey, any telehealth is better than no you know, uh, health uh, available, and it opened up the doors for people who to expand their business and expand their clientele if they uh, wanted to. So uh, that was that was kind of the nice thing that happened after COVID. Mm -hmm. You know, and something else um, for those who are thinking about working for themselves, you know, there's a lot to be said about that. There's a lot of freedom in working for yourself, mm -hmm. um, but then there's also a lot of responsibility. Right. Um, and thinking about the business end, which cash flow, you know, paying estimated taxes, health insurance, mm -hmm. all of that stuff that sometimes um, is an afterthought because people get so eager. Mm -hmm. um, so those are just some things to, to think about. And that's universal in psychotherapy and in, in social work, especially if you decide to work for yourself. 
You know, the one thing that I want to ask is based on your experience, what are some valuable skills or qualities that you believe are essential for success in the field of social work? And how can students help prepare themselves um, if they wanted to go into this field? I would say, um, like, don't make assumptions. Um, don't assume that you you know everything. Um, really try to stay curious about what's coming up for the clients like before you. Mm -hmm. um, maintaining a non-judgmental stance. Um, you know, knowing when knowing not people pleasing. Right, I think is something that comes up a lot for therapists, or at least in some of the um, social work groups that I'm in. Um, and self-care is really important. I think that was really hard for me as a young social worker, even before I went to my master's program, because it's, you're, you're taking on a lot of energy um, and there's vicarious trauma. And so what does self-care mean? I know everybody's talking about it. Um, you know, getting your own therapist is huge, right? Having a supervisor, if you've if you've just seen or heard of an, a traumatic event that's affecting you, like having having your own space to process that so you can let it go. Mm -hmm. um, so those are just some of my, you know, my initial thoughts. And you kind of led me to my next question about self care because, you know, as an advocate for well, you know, being and he mental health. Um, you know, there are many things that you experience and you even mentioned some during your journey is while you were working on your master's and then uh, the pressure of working full time and going to school part time and then starting your own business, taking on clients. And, and you mentioned one uh, advice that I'd uh, um, reemphasize is know your boundaries and share those boundaries with your clients or your other people that you're working with as well. Have that outlet, as you said, uh, somebody else that you can you can basically talk to. Any other bits of advice for students on self-care while maintaining their own mental health while going to school? I think um, really knowing your limits. And at times, I think COVID was a, a point for me where I, I didn't know my limits, right? I probably was seeing, I think a lot of therapists were seeing too many people. Um, but knowing your limits and everybody has a different, everybody has different capacities and there's no shaming or blaming. Mm -hmm. And that, you know, I have a psychiatrist friend who sees 14 people a week and like, he, he's like, I can't, can't do anymore. Um, so knowing your limits. Um, and I think in, you know, in my work, taking a lot of um, like breaks and time off from work is important. So I try to um, like get out of, I mean, I also live in New York City. I try to get out of the city about once a month. Um, I try to go to nature to heal. Mm -hmm. um, so hiking, running, um, being outdoors is really helpful. Very good advice. You're also an author. I mentioned a couple of books here. Here to Make Friends, How to Make Friends as an Adult. And then your newest book, The Resilience Workbook for Women. Uh, tell us a little bit more about your newest book. Sure. Um, so my newest book came out, I, I believe, like two weeks ago. I think it's fully on Amazon. Mm -hmm. Both the PDF and e-version e should be linked. I'm sorry, the PDF and paper copy. Yep. Um, and so really, um, it's, 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 it's a number of exercises, some um, that are adapted from other thought leaders, some that I've devised on my own, thinking about ways that we can build upon our resilience to cope with difficult times. 
Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I think we all are born with a level of resilience, but then I'm like, how do you cultivate it? Right. Mm-hmm. So it's, um, you know, the, my hope is, is that the exercises in this book can be applicable to whatever challenge um, the person is going through. And some users might, you know, really benefit from going through all of the exercises and others might not. Um, I would say it's sort of an amalgamation of positive psychology, um, cognitive therapy, systemic therapy, um, and some somatic um, therapies. Those are where a lot of the exercises come from. How has writing these books uh, helped you in, you know, your career? So another way to look at it is, you know, how has this helped you in your career, expand your network, expand your, it almost forces you to relook at what you learned and apply it to help other people as well. And how can, you know, um, aspiring students who want to follow in your footsteps handle both of these things? Because when you dedicate yourself to write a book, there are some deadlines that your publisher puts on you oh, gosh, as yeah. well. So <laughs> talk to me a little bit about that. Yeah. Um, you know, I actually think that writing these books is a little, it, it was self-care for me in a number mm-hmm. of ways. Um, and so the first book I wrote, which came out in 2020, but I had been asked to write it uh, in like 2019. Um, and they were kind of like, can you, can you get this out quick? And I was like, okay, I've never written a book before. I'll do my best. Um, but I do think it gives, it, it, you, it does take time away from the business. You have to be very mindful about that. But for me, it gave my mind um, just like some more mental exercise, right? And it was actually a really nice break. Mm-hmm. Um, and that is also part of self-care, right? So kind of having your mind think in different ways. So it was a nice um, derivation. Um, I definitely think that now... Um, Listen, I'm a Luddite. I'm not a fan of technology. I'm not a, a super fan of this Instagram stuff. But I do think that, you know, we live in this world, unlike maybe our predecessors, um, where the therapists are marketing themselves, right? And I'm not like a huge fan of this, right? I'd rather be like, you know, 20 years ago, old school, you get a referral, you like the person, it's a fit. But this is just, you know, part of being a therapist today is being a business person, right? If we look at Esther Perel or Sue Johnson or, you know, some others, it's it's really about marketing, you know. So I like the act of writing books. I think I mentioned earlier, I used to work in libraries. I love being in libraries. I love reading. Um, this was, it was a really, it was sort of a gift that the universe gave me and hopefully, hopefully it's helpful, but it is something that people have to think about writing blogs. Um, SEO, how you market yourself. And that's a very good point. It, it is different than it used to be back in the day. Uh, unfortunately, if you want to, uh, you know, a lot of people, once you get your client base built up, you don't have to do as much marketing any longer. But if you're new, that is one of the strategies that you can use. Uh, and, you know, let's face it, after all, I, if I'm new and I'm trying to build my client uh, base, I will do almost anything to do that and, and use any of these means to do that. I'm sharing the screen once again. You mentioned your first book back in um, um, 2020. So here was the one that I mentioned in the intro that you received that uh, 2020 gold winner for family and relationships. And uh, this is also uh, in paperback and then you can listen to it as well. So uh, I'll put this up on the uh, website when we go live. A follow-up question for you is 
in your experience thus far, what are some of the most pressing issues or challenges facing the field of social work today? Facing the field is that I'm not sure there's enough of us. Um, and I do think that a lot of the um, non-governmental organizations and nonprofits are facing like a real dearth of good clinical social workers, especially in New York. Um, you know, I have colleagues who worked at all the agencies that I used to work for. And, you know, it's really hard to maintain staff because they are so underpaid, especially if they aren't doing social work for the social justice component of it. Mm -hmm. um, so I think that's a challenge. Um, you know, it's interesting, my colleagues and I, we taught in the private practice domain. Um, the other challenge is that there are a number of these online platforms where they're hiring LMSWs. And I have a girlfriend who's in this predicament and they're significantly underpaying her, but she's doing like the teletherapy mill, right? She's like, okay. you know, uh, so that is also um, a challenge of these tech companies are creating these platforms and it's all nice and they get health insurance and stuff, but they are overworked and sometimes they're not the most qualified, right? Mm -hmm. um, you know, my I know my therapist has a number of certifications and you know, have lived experience and like is relatable. And, and so I think, you know, it's, 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 it's sort of merging into this different market, um, mm -hmm. which, you know, I think sometimes can strip away the therapist individuality. Um, so I think th those are two, two challenges facing the field of social work. And also social work education is very expensive, mm -hmm. right? And so if you're not going to be, you know, you're not a doctor coming out of it. Right, but you're paying at doctor prices for two years, maybe not four, right? But it's still very expensive. Yeah, definitely. The other thing to keep in mind is to continue your licensure, you have to have so many credits of continuing work as well. And a lot of people may look at that as, oh my gosh, that's more expensive. I have to continue paying, but you should rather be looking at it as what other areas am I really interested in? And can I receive more of these licenses to bring more you know, value to my clients? And so I know uh, many of our guests, uh, once they get out there, they realized, oh my gosh, I wasn't really equipped to handle this type of situation or this type of uh, uh, presenting problem with my clients. And therefore I went out and I actually educated myself, took some more classes and then got licensed in whatever area. So that's another mm -hmm. way to look at it. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And I think, um, you know, uh, PESI, um, which has a lot of the continuing education credits, they have retreats, you know, where you can go somewhere <laughs> and you, and you're in this immersive, um, CEU program. So you're getting something out of it. But it's a, it's a, it's like a conference, right? It's somewhere, sure. you know, I, I, I did IFS training in Sedona, you know? And so, yes, it's, a, it's an upfront cost. But if you're running your own business, talk to your accountant, you know, they'll, they'll help you figure that out, right? Because these are all business expenses, too. So don't, yeah. don't let that be a, limit, a limitation. I think the continuing ed, for me, is um, also part of my self-care because I mm -hmm. love to learn. Um, mm -hmm. Yeah, definitely. And I'll share my screen one last time here. Even though you mentioned you don't like doing all the marketing and the social uh, aspect of it, you do have a Facebook page. And uh, actually, I saw this note or this uh, uh, Facebook post from Ulysses Press um, mm -hmm. uh, announcing your gold winner for Here to Make Friends. 
And then you also have a couple others here and here is your Instagram page. And then of course mm -hmm. we will, we will share uh, all of these pages once we go live. And then of course, if you want to look, uh, look at Hope's uh, background and journey a little bit more, you can go to the LinkedIn page for her as well. But uh, I wanted to share those. And, you know, the other thing to kind of summarize here is, you know, look at, like you said, look at where you want to end up, what you want to do after you receive your graduate degree or degrees, and then kind of make a plan to reach that goal. And and that will help determine what you should do, where you should go, and how you should actually, you know, unfortunately, market yourself uh, in that new area. So, um, Hope, what do you love most about your job? I, I actually love the clients that I see. Um, you know, and in private practice, you, you know, you get to kind of meet people and assess if you're a good fit and not everybody's a, a good fit. Right. And so like, they're going to be people that just hate you and don't like you and that's fine. They can move forward. But I, I love getting up every day, um, helping people that I really do care about, um, and seeing them grow. It's really, you know, um, I think that uh maybe it was cnbc somebody just came out with a list of the most gratifying careers and construction was the first one because people can see the end product therapists we don't always get to see the end product but the gift of seeing somebody blossom is just it's the most amazing thing um and being along their journey if they let you and so i i'm so grateful to, that i i have my clients and you know i'm I'm diligent about like doing the work, but I, I, I really love it. I, I, I made the right choice for, for me. Mm -hmm. um, you know, and then the other thing with social work, just to like note is that there are so many different ways that that, um, that degree and the skill set associated with it can be used. So I have a friend who like right now is a social worker and a family therapist, but they're going to move into performance coaching. Mm -hmm. I have another friend who was like, you know what, I need really good benefits. Um, and I'm going to go into HR. So it can be what you make it. Sure. Sure. Any other uh, professional or personal goals that you still hope to achieve in your career? Yes, but I haven't really formulated. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> I, I would like, I would like to write an, another book. Um, you know, but I have to kind of float that with Ulysses probably in like another two years because it is very laborious and it does take me away from self-care. Um, you know, I would like to maybe start to do some like group work and helping uh, people who suffer from social anxiety and how that gets in the way of them making friends as an adult um, and, and, and more stuff on, along that. But nothing, I don't have a fully formed idea. In this okay. No, that's fine. That's fine. At the end of our podcast, if you've noticed, we usually ask some fun questions. And the first one I usually ask is tell us something unique about yourself. Um, let's see, what is unique? Um, I used to spear fish. I was terrible. So that's actually kind of unique. Um, I, I've petted, I've touched a, a rhinoceros. Um, um I've, I don't know, what, what is like really unique? I, I don't know, maybe I'm kind of basic, but um, I, I really like cooking. Um, I'm learning okay. Greek because my partner is, he's Greek Australian and I was told you gotta learn Greek. 
could, and I was like, I could just keep on talking about me. It's fine. Like in Greek, but <laughs> I was told, so that, that could be interesting. Um, and I used to run marathons, but I haven't had a chance to do so since the pandemic and half marathons rather. Well, that's wonderful. Any one of those by themselves may not be unique, but when you combine all of them, they do make <laughs> up you. So that is your uniqueness. So um, that is true. think about what your favorite term, principle, or theory is and why. Um, something that I'm actually more curious about now is um, quantum physics, actually. Okay. Um, so I am currently just moving through my last bit of um, Imago certification, which is um, an older type of family therapy. Um, and the premise is sort of based on um, quantum physics, right? That the, and I'm, I'm really, this is a little bit reductionist, I'll admit, but the thing that fascinates me is that our thoughts and our words um, do have energy um, and that we do give off energy. Mm -hmm. um, and it, I know it's like, you know, probably my mom would say, oh, don't, don't, you know, get that RBF you know, resting bitch face off and like give positive energy, but there is something really about that. Mm -hmm. um, so I'm becoming a little bit more curious about quantum physics as it relates to like dynamics in the universe and between humans mm -hmm. because of Imago. Well, that's interesting. My, as we were talking before we started recording, my background is interpersonal communication. And uh, one of the things that has been true for a long, long, long time is when you look at pictures or live video of people that are smiling versus those who are not, you obviously receive that energy. So it, it, it makes sense. And now that they're getting deeper and deeper into it, it, it would be interesting to find out more about that as well. Um, do you have any other advice for those interested in the field of social work or psychology? I, I think um, my recommendation would be to talk to somebody who's doing the work. Okay. Right. And become curious about what the hardest parts of their journey were. Right. Cause people like to sugarcoat things, but sure. I know for me, I want to, I want to be prepared. I want to know what the hardest parts are. Um, the ch perspective challenges, how to overcome them, how to navigate through them. Okay. Very good. If you had the time and money to complete one project or go on one trip, what would you do? Um, one project, I probably, that's interesting. Um, I would probably want to have like a rescue dog farm. <laughs> so I say this to my clients. I said, if I have, you know, listen, I like, I love my job. I need my job, but I wish I didn't have to do my job. Right. I wish that people in the world like weren't hurt and didn't, and weren't in need of healing. And if, that were the case, I would probably go to like rural Connecticut. I'd learn how to drive, go to rural Connecticut and have like just a farm for dogs that were hurt. Like that's sort of, I love my dog. I love dogs. Like that's probably one project that I would undertake, um, okay. you know, having a, like a sustainable, like communal farm with a lot of dogs that needed help. <laughs> that's wonderful. Now, would you, uh, I also asked if you could go on one trip, if you could go on one trip, what would you do? So it's interesting because I just came back from Africa and that was oh. sort of like my big bucket list um, trip. Um, so a friend had invited me on a safari. So I was blessed to have accomplished that. 
Um, I think if I had to go to one other place, um, where would it be? Um, maybe Svalbard in um, like kind of Norway, kind of okay. very remote like um, place. But I don't, I don't have that. I don't know. I'm not. I, I've, I've, I've had the great fortune to be able to travel. Um, so I think I would just want to, if I had the opportunity, I just want to be healthy and live for as long as I can. Sure. Um, really. Okay. Well, that's good. Hope, is there anything else that you would like to discuss or bring up on this podcast? I think I'm, I think I'm, I think that's it for me. Okay. Well, again, I appreciate you taking the time out of your schedule to share your journey with us and your advice. I really appreciated, uh, hearing about, all of the things that you went through in order to start your career, start your private practice. And then I loved your uh, advice talking about how did you decide to go the social work route versus the, you know, psychology route as well. So thank you so much for being on the podcast. Of course, Brad. Thank you for having me. I appreciate it. Thanks for listening to the Masters in Psychology podcast. If you want to learn more about our guest or listen to other podcasts, you can visit our website, mastersinpsychology.com, where you can search through all of the schools in the United States that offer advanced degrees in psychology. You can also find us on Facebook, Twitter, and LinkedIn. And remember, if you enjoyed this podcast, please like, follow, or share.